Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for sending us your Son. Lord, to show us and model for us what it means to follow after you. Lord, I pray that you would make your word alive to us. Through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, uh, this will be my last sermon uh, here at Grace. I'll be with you next week as well, but this will be my last sermon. So I want to do two things. First off, I want to unpack the Sermon on the Mount text that we're going to be looking at today. And the second thing is I want to spend a few minutes unpacking the last six years and where I've seen God at work here at Grace. So let's start with the text. Now, most of us know that uh, high school graduations, college graduations have been a little bit different this year. And um, so what you've seen a lot of is doing Zoom graduations where people have been tuning in and they've been bringing in different commencement speakers and they've been sitting in their living room giving the commencement speech. So I want you to imagine this, that somebody calls you up and says, we want you to be the commencement speaker for a local high school here in Jacksonville. And we want you to come and to give a commencement speech on this topic. What do you believe the good life is? What does a good life look like? And what is the path to get there? So what would you share? Just take a second. What would you share with these students who are about to be unleashed into the world? So today, in our text, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, we're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17 down to 20. It's on page 810 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. And this is what we see just Jesus unpacking. First off, what is the good life? And then secondly, what's the path to get to that good life? And he clearly says right off the bat that he has come to bring a new kind of life. And he describes it a couple different times in this passage. He says this. He talks about what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. He also talks about how to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so throughout the Gospel of Matthew, for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is really important. That's what the good life looks like. So important that Jesus' first public sermon in Matthew 4, verse 17, he begins to preach and he says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying is that I have come to bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so what does that mean? Where's the kingdom of heaven? That's where God's will and ways are done. It's the way that life should be, that that's what Jesus has come to do, that the kingdom of heaven would break here on earth, break into existence here on earth. That's what he's come to do. But he says, repent. We have to change our mind, change the the way we understand what the good life is and how to get there. And so what we see Jesus doing in this passage is he addresses two of the most common approaches to what people consider to be the way to the good life. And so in Matthew 5, Verse 17, he starts, um, and, he, and he unpacks these two different ways. And I'm going to give you a, a basic overview of, of these two different ways that we generally approach. One is what I would call the modern approach, which is what you see in the Western world. And then the other is the traditional approach, what you see oftentimes in the non-Western world. So the modern approach says this, do what you want to do. Whereas the traditional approach says, do what you're supposed to do. The modern approach has a really high emphasis on personal freedom, that you get to decide what you want to do and how you do it and who you are, whereas a traditional approach has this emphasis on responsibility, that your family, your society, your community, you are to 
to do what they encourage you to do, that, that you have responsibility to live into their expectations for you. So if you were to think about your own heart, which one of those do you kind of veer towards? The modern approach? So when you hear external guidelines, you automatically try, try to push back against them and say, Ugh, no, I don't want to do that. I want to make my own way. Or the more traditional approach, that when you hear external guidelines, you're like, this is really helpful. Now I know kind of how I should live and what I should come into alignment with. So these two approaches is what Jesus takes aim at in this passage. And then he gives a new way of approaching life, a new way to the good life. So in Matthew 5, we see Jesus do this. Starting in verse 17, he starts with this modern approach. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. And so what we know is some of the people that were sitting listening to Jesus' teachings were thinking, well, maybe Jesus has come to lower the bar. Maybe he's come to say, hey, guys, everybody was really uptight in the Old Testament. We had all of these laws in the, in the first five books of the Old Testament, then we had all these laws that came in the rest of the Old Testament. That's what the law and the prophets are. First five books is the law, then the rest of the Old Testament is what's considered the prophets. And so they're thinking, great, maybe Jesus has come to relax things a little bit. And this is what Jesus says to them. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He goes on, he says, for truly I say to you, unless you had any doubt, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so the way to the good life is not through lowering the bar or getting rid of God's law. In fact, throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, especially chapter 5, Jesus takes the law, law about murder, about um, adultery, um, about making promises, all these things that are in the law, and he doesn't lower the bar. He actually heightens and intensifies them. He raises the bar on what God is calling us to do. And so all throughout you you hear this refrain in in chapter 5. You have heard that it was said... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But then he says, but I say to you, listen to how he intensifies it and heightens it. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, just anger, internal anger, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's saying, this is what you have in the law, but actually this is what God actually requires of you. So he heightens and intensifies it. And this is why. Because he knows that this modern approach, ultimately what it leads to is selfishness. That what it's all about is saying, I'm going to make my own rules. I'm going to be my own God. And he says, the danger here is this, that you will leave behind in your life a trail of broken relationships and pain. That if you try to make your own rules and live the way you want, other people will pay the consequences for that. He's saying, in love, I've given you my law to show you how to live. So he says, repent, turn away from the modern approach because at its root is selfishness. But then in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 5, verse 20, he turns his attention to the traditional approach. So he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were the people that were considered the most righteous in the Jewish culture. They sought to live according to the law to the T. Every jot and tittle they tried to live into. But here's the deal. It was all about external conformity. And Jesus says this, that your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he really starts to look at them in chapter 6, where he starts things off by saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So he cuts to the root of what's at this traditional approach, which at the root, it's actually self-righteousness. So if the modern approach at its root is selfishness, the traditional approach at its root is self-righteousness, which invariably alienates people. It looks to keep people out and exclude people from the kingdom of God, and it can cause just as much pain and broken relationships. A self-righteous person is just as dangerous to friends and family as a selfish person. So, he says, repent of the traditional approach. At its root, there's self-righteousness. So he takes aim at both of those. So then, what we see in fact in the whole of Scripture is that Jesus gives us a new approach to life, to the way to the good life. So how can we become righteous so that we might enter the kingdom of heaven? And this is the way of the gospel, a totally different approach. And this can be summarized by Ephesians. I, I, don't, I, I can unpack this, but I want to pick a couple really rich uh, passages that really talks about the way of the gospel. And it can be summarized by Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10. So Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And so the gospel cuts right at our self-righteousness. That is, is a gift. Righteousness comes from the gift of Jesus Christ. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ that we get our righteousness. Now, how is that the case? It's through faith. Through faith in what Jesus has done to save us. And, the, and this is a summary statement um, if you remember anything from any of my preaching, remember this, because this is the gospel in a nutshell. And this is not my words, this is Paul's words. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is what Jesus came to do. He said this, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to become sin who knew no sin. So what that means is Jesus actually lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And on top of that, on the cross, he became sin. He took on all of our sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that gift of righteousness that we get through faith gets given to us. It's a gift that now our new identity is as sons and daughters of God. Righteous sons and daughters of God. That's our new identity in Christ. And that comes through relationship to him. So that's completely, that makes us completely humble. There's no room for self-righteousness because we know apart from God, all we are is sin and brokenness. But in Christ, because of what he's done, we are the righteousness of God. That's our new identity. But he doesn't stop there. Ephesians 2 continues on in verse 10 and says, By grace you have been saved through faith. There's no room for boasting. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, what does that mean, Christ's workmanship? 
What that means is this. The literal meaning is that we are God's masterpiece. That what God is doing in us by giving this new identity is creating a masterpiece. You and me are his workmanship. And we've been given a new purpose. So there's no room for that selfishness to say, okay, well, now we have Christ's righteousness. We can do whatever we want. No, we've been given a new purpose. God is painting a masterpiece in us on the canvas of our lives. And he's causing and calling us to live a righteous, holy life defined by goodness and grace, defined by Christ's likeness. He wants to turn us to become like Christ. Now, how does he do that? All right, how is this any different than just following the law? This is why it's different. And this is why Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jeremiah 31, 33 tells us this about what Jesus came to do. He says, when Jesus came and when we become his children, the promise is this, that he will put his law, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so the law is no longer just written on a piece of paper. It's actually written on to our hearts by the hand of God. And so it lives within us. And it says, I will be their God, they will be my people. Do you see that relational language there? So righteousness comes through relationship. And then it goes on in Ezekiel. It says, not only am I going to write my law on your hearts, but it says, I'm going to give you a new heart. This is Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so not only does God write his law on our hearts, but then he puts his spirit within us that we might walk in his ways. You see, we're his masterpiece. He's written our law and given us his spirit to be written in our hearts. So you see that idea that growth comes through relationship. Righteousness comes through relationship. So I saw a good picture of this this past week. Um, We took our son to one of his favorite uh, playgrounds. um, And there was this rock climbing wall, and it's really, honestly, for like 8 to 10-year-olds. Um, I tried it, and it was pretty difficult. I made it up, but it was hard. Um, but he wanted to do it, and this was his first time that he really approached it and thought, like, I'm going to give it a try. And so what he did is he started um, to climb it, and what I did is I held on to his waist. And so he started climbing, and I held on to his waist. And when he would get stuck, he would kind of grab, you know, one hold and find another hold. Then he would kind of get stuck and start to whine a little bit. And I would say, Cohen, look, there's the green, grab the green one. He would grab the green one. And then, uh, and then he would get stuck and his arms would be up here. And I was like, Cohen, put your legs, uh, you see the blue one? He would look down. And what would happen is he would climb and I would hold on to his waist. And he would climb and I would hold on to his waist. And he would climb and I would hold on to his waist and give him directions on the way up. And before you knew it, there I was at the very, holding him at the very top of the wall. And he, you know, pushed up and he looked down. And he had this big smile on his face. He was so pumped that he climbed the wall. And when I was doing that, I was thinking about the sermon that I was going to preach. And that's so much what righteousness looks like. That we have our identity in Christ. That God is holding on to us as we grow in our faith. And as we struggle to overcome our sin and temptation and Put away those old ways. So God holds on to us, but we also have to climb. And it's challenging at times. Sanctification is challenging. 
But we have freedom because we know God is holding on to us. So we climb and God holds on to us. That's what this way of growing in Christ-likeness looks like. Righteousness comes through relationships. So that's the text. That's where I wanted to unpack that text for us. That's what growth in Christ looks like. But I also want to spend a few minutes uh, sharing a little bit of where I've seen Christ growing you, this church, in this past six years. So I got six words for uh, the last six years. Um, And if you're a visitor and you're like, I don't know who you are, Dan, Dan, I don't know. Or or you're like, I don't know much about this church. This is, I want to tell you about what this church is all about um, so that you can figure out if this is the church you want to be a part of. So the first two words is who grace is. When we came to grace, these things were immediately apparent to us. The first is that grace is a loving place. That you really do live into the word grace. That when you come to be part of the people of God, you just feel loved here. That there is a genuine uh, kindness and welcome warmth that is this people of grace. And I was thinking about Jesus talking to his disciples in, at, in the upper room in John 13, 34, about what it was all about. He says this in 35. He says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Grace, you're a loving place. Secondly, you're a humble place. Um, you're a historic church with multiple generations here. You have some rock-solid believers here that have been walking with Jesus for 50 years. And a lot of times you'll hear pastors share, oh my gosh, my, my people, they're faithful, but they're so resistant to change. But we haven't found that to be the case at all at Grace. You welcome this little 28-year-old whippersnapper onto the staff who really had no idea what he was doing. But in your humility, you took me under your wing. And in your humility, you actually let me lead you. And what we found, what I've found, what Mike's found, what the team has found is time and time again, you're hungry to grow as as a people. You're adaptable. You're willing to make the changes in order to grow. You are a humble congregation, so you're loving and you're humble. That's, that's who Grace is. That's always been the case since the day we arrived. And I want to share a little bit of who Grace has become, what we've seen in the last six years. We've seen the leadership empowered here. When I got here, um, one of the things that I heard over and over again is, you know, oh yeah, I would say like, well, what, what about that person? They're like, oh man, they're already doing so much. They're really carrying, they, they have a heavy leadership load here. What about this person? And what that, that whole idea of like the 80-20 rule, we talked about that a lot when I first got here. But what I've seen in the last six years is that's no longer the case. That leadership has been powered here. So many of you guys through Alpha, Rooted, Life Group, Soul in the City, Youth Group, Children's Ministry, Worship Team, so many new leaders have been raised up. People have stepped out, out of their comfort zone to follow Jesus and lead. And so in the last six years, I've seen this congregation become empowered. And another thing that I've seen in the last six years is this become a place of invitation. That you guys have really taken on the challenge of praying for, investing in, and inviting your non-Christian friends to come explore who Jesus is at Alpha. You've taken ownership of that. And two years ago, I had this dream. And I don't usually have dreams, and if they do, they make no real sense at all. Um, But this dream, there was a sense that this was a significant dream. Um, I had this dream that uh, it was the kickoff of Alpha, and I was late. 
So I was like 15 minutes late, and I was like rushing, trying to get there. And, and I was like, what am I going to find when I get there? Is it, is it going to be empty? You know, is nobody going to be there? Just, just the leaders? You know, is it going to be in chaos? What's going to happen when I get there? And I, and I came up, and I come running in, and the room is packed with people. And Danny and Taya were in the dreams. They, they were there up front leading and cracking jokes and just had the whole thing going. And all the different work teams were there and everything was fully functioning. And to me, it was like God saying, this is what I'm going to do, Dan. It's not about you. This is bigger than you. This is what I'm going to do in these people at Grace. And in February, I got to see that dream become a reality. I saw, sat right in there in the narthex and I saw all of you in, the, past, in the, the, the few months previously pray for, invest, and invite your friends. And we had over 80 guests in there, not including leaders. And the room was totally packed with people. This was before coronavirus, so it was allowed to be at that point. Um, it was totally packed with people. And I just sat back as the leaders were doing all the different parts. And I just said, God, you are so good that you have become an invitational church. And I know things are a little bit... Um, muddy right now in terms of what Alpha is going to be like, but what I want to tell you, Grace, is that's what God's been doing in you, so don't lose that momentum. Continue to grow into that invitational culture. Continue to, to have an open door to draw people in to explore Jesus. So you're loving, you're humble, you're empowered, you're invitational. And then the last two words are where I sense God leading. That I sense God leading you to become a reproducing church. That I believe that a church's fruitfulness in the 21st century is not going to be about the number on your budget line or the number of buildings that you have, but it's going to be the number of births. The number of churches that are planted through you, new ministry initiatives that are planted to you, non-believers that are invited to come explore Jesus and be saved and brought into a new birth in Christ. And here's what I've seen. It's already happening. Is that you've been so generous to support the work in St. John's County, the work in New England that Carrie and I are heading to do, this new work that's happening in India. This is something that I believe God is turning you into a reproducing church. So that six years from now, you're going to be able to say, look at what God's birthing all through this church. And then lastly is this, that I think God's doing something through our worship. That grace, when we arrived, had rich worship, three streams, spirit, sacrament, and scripture weaved together. But the image that has been coming to mind for me is like a spring that God's been winding tighter and tighter and tighter. That I have this expectation that God is going to break forth in a new way here at Grace through the worship because we haven't been able to all gather together and sing. And I think he's stirring in us a hunger for worship and here's the thing, it's, it's cool because they're building this new platform, which I think is going to contribute to it, but I don't think that this new breakthrough in worship is going to happen by leadership of the people up here. I think it's going to come through the pews. It's going to happen through you, that God is bubbling up something in you, and I can't wait to come back six years from now and see that spring completely loose and the spirit engaging and, and, the, and the people of God participating in a richer, deeper new way. That's what I believe God's doing. So you're a loving place, you're a humble place, you're an empowered place, you're an invitational place, and he's making you into a reproducing place and giving you a new rich way to worship.
So Grace, our family cannot thank you enough for the last six years. We love you. And we can't wait to come visit and see what God is going to do in this next six years. Because as we learn today, as Jesus told us, righteousness comes through relationship. Stay connected to Jesus. You are his masterpiece. And he has prepared good works for you. So I'm going to pray for us. And as we head into this time of worship, I want you to listen to what part you sense God calling you to do as he paints this masterpiece. Because you are part of that. So we're going to have a time of worship for you to listen and say, God, what are you doing? What part do I play in what you're doing here at Grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Lord, for these people, Lord, for their love for you, Lord, I pray that you would continue the good work that you're doing here through these people. Lord, I pray that they would grow in righteousness, grow in love, grow in humility, grow in grace, that they would become more and more in the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.